delighted to uh, welcome you this afternoon to uh, the second lecture, uh, Dr. Williams, and I won't belabor uh, the introduction again since I had a chance to introduce him this morning, and uh, he, most of it's still the same. Uh, so, uh, but I would like to highlight uh, while we're here, uh, this book, uh, this is Dr. Williams' second book, um, The Defenders of the Unborn, and uh, it's really remarkable piece of scholarship in all kinds of ways uh, in that it is documenting you know, a, a, a piece of political, cultural, and of course religious history uh, that I think is pretty understudied. We were having dinner last night talking about kind of the, the collection of material associated with it, uh, something that's probably underappreciated uh, and has been uh, in, in, in need of a lot more preservation. So uh, it's, it's remarkable in that way. And as a result, a uh, pretty widely reviewed book in a lot of publications. So uh, I wanted to read uh, just the tail end of a review that I think captures some of uh, what has been particularly uh, useful and valuable about this book and what uh, Professor Williams has brought to it. Uh, this is uh, a review by Tracy McKenzie. He said, Williams has done an invaluable service to anyone who cares about the future of, of the pro-life cause. We rarely think deeply about aspects of the world that seemed carved in granite. I think this is something that we might imagine that we have a particular understanding of what abortion is, what the pro-life movement is, what one side says, what one, another side says. One of the great things about historical study, it's a little more complicated than that. And the book uh, sort of gets to that. It says, Defenders of the Unborn restores a fluidity and, and unpredictability to the story of abortion politics, and one that I think keeps our consciousness of these issues fresh and hopefully well-informed by the world as it actually is or has been. Uh, the way things are is not the way things always have been or always will be. God willing, when future historians visit our own abortion-friendly age, they too will be puzzled, puzzled by its foreign customs. So good little teaser and introduction. Uh, let me pray before we welcome uh, Professor Williams. Lord, we thank you uh, for the opportunity we have to uh, engage your world and to do so uh, through the lens of uh, thoughtful scholars like Professor Williams. Thank you for his good work, uh, for your faithfulness to him and his faithfulness in making use of the gifts you've given him in uh, studying this important topic and those surrounding it and uh, making it available uh, to us and to the <coughs> world of scholarship. So uh, be with him, encourage him, uh, and I pray, Lord, you would add to our understanding as a result of our time together. Uh, so bless us now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please join welcoming Professor Williams. Well, thank you, Jay. That was a kind introduction. Um, what I want to do uh, in our time this afternoon is to tell a story that I think is probably going to be unfamiliar to most of you, unless you've read Defenders of the Unborn. It was certainly unfamiliar to me before I started researching and writing this book. And in many ways, it's an uncomfortable story, uh, although also an inspiring one. It's a story that I think is convicting uh, regarding who was participating in the pro-life movement in its early years and who was not. 
And it's also perhaps a call to rethink some of our conceptions about what it means to be pro-life. It's a story, as this title slide suggests, that is a liberal story. Uh, now, when you think of the pro-life movement today, probably the word liberal is not the first thing that comes to mind, uh, and for obvious reasons. But there was a time when the political equation was very different. Uh, one part of the review by Tracy McKenzie that, that uh, Jay didn't read was uh, the first paragraph where he talks about where he calls it entering the twilight zone, a world in which Ted Kennedy was speaking out against abortion and Ronald Reagan was signing an abortion liberalization bill in California. But that's the world that I want to enter. I want to talk uh, this afternoon about why the pro-life movement developed and why it took the trajectory that it did, why the political alliances that we know today eventually emerged. And then because I'm at Covenant College, and I know that this is a college that has as its motto in all things Christ preeminent and that uh, attempts very deliberately to, to cultivate a sense of, of Christ-centered mission uh, in each of its undergraduates. I'll conclude by actually reflecting on where the pro-life movement is today and what it might mean to defend the unborn today in 2017. And I'll suggest some possibilities, but perhaps no firm answers, some things that will perhaps lead to, to a larger conversation uh, that might occur in the Q&A. So that's where we're headed. But to begin, I want to go back in time to September 1972. This was a few months before Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade would be issued in January of 1973, but already several states, including New York, had legalized all abortion up through the second trimester. <coughs> abortion was at least partially available uh, in approximately 17 states, and there were about half a million legal abortions that occurred in 1972. So at this moment, there was the first major pro-life rally on the Mall. And if you follow the pro-life movement today, you know, of course, that the March for Life in January, 19, in, in January of each year commemorating uh, the Roe v. Wade decision protesting against that is a fixture of the movement. But the first rally against abortion on the Washington Mall occurred a few months before that, and this rally looked very different than the rallies that perhaps we're familiar with today. It was a liberal rally, a self-consciously liberal rally, organized by students uh, whose leader, uh, Sue Baster, called her organization uh, the National Youth Pro-Life Coalition, quote, an extremely liberal group. And so in keeping with that theme, the rally featured a musical performance by a pro-life rock band. It featured speeches at the Lincoln Memorial intended to echo Martin Luther King's famous speech of nine years earlier. And it included a moment for participants to throw copies of their birth certificates into a large recycling barrel in protest against what they called the erroneous role of birth instead of conception as the beginning of human life, a, a clear reference to the draft burning of the time. And in fact, one of the, the keynote speakers was the young anti-war, at the time Lutheran minister, Richard John Newhouse, who would later convert to Catholicism, but at the time was a liberal Lutheran, who had served as a delegate for the Democratic presidential candidate George McGovern at the Democratic National Convention the previous month. 
And he was chosen because of his appeal to a pro-life crowd that embraced the politics of the left. And his speech did not disappoint. The anti-abortion forces are not instruments of political and social conservatism, Newhouse declared. Rather, they are related to the protest against the Indochina War, meaning, of course, Vietnam, the militarization of American life, and the social crimes perpetrated against the poor. So in this presentation, I want to examine Newhouse's claim and take a fresh look at the origins of the pro-life movement. Did this pro-life movement, which today we associate perhaps with the right wing of the Republican Party, really have liberal origins? And if so, what were those origins? Why did liberals, before Roe v. Wade, embrace the movement? And what prompted it eventually to make an alliance with political conservatism? If we're asking those questions, we need to actually go back to an earlier point in time than 1972. And in fact, the story that I want to tell begins in the 1930s. In the 1930s, abortion had been illegal in almost all places in the United States for at least half a century. But in the 1930s, there were a number of doctors, mostly liberal and secular Jewish doctors, along with a, a handful of very liberal Protestants and others, who began calling for the liberalization of existing abortion laws. And they did so not because they believed that the fetus was not a human being, but rather because of their philosophy of utilitarianism. Utilitarianism, which probably many of you have studied uh, in philosophy classes, especially, I, you know, especially if you've taken Dr. Davis's courses, I'm sure. Uh, <coughs> utilitarianism can be simplified, perhaps oversimplified, but simplified by saying it believes in the greatest good for the greatest number. And this was their approach to the abortion issue. As one of these people, Dr. Alan Guttmacher said in one of his addresses, quote, I don't like killing. I don't like to do abortions, but many of you people probably fought in World War II, he said this in 1961, and killed because you wanted to preserve something more important. I think a mother's life is more important than a fetus. And so this quotation, when I discovered it, seemed quite remarkable because he called abortion killing and said he didn't like to do them, but he was devoting much of his career at that point as president of, of Planned Parenthood and as a leader of the abortion law liberalization campaign to trying to liberalize existing abortion law. And he was quite honest about the reasons he was doing this, that although abortion made him deeply uncomfortable from a, a moral standpoint, he also believed, like some of these doctors uh, such as A.J. Uh, Ranji and uh, Frederick Talsig and others in the 1930s had argued, that the abortion laws were driving some women to their deaths. And furthermore, that making abortion illegal was only making society worse off. So it would be better to legalize something that was very morally problematic to say the least in their view, but that would ultimately save women's lives. The abortion laws were accomplishing nothing. They were simply driving abortion underground. And there actually is probably some reason to believe that, that, that even by conservative estimates, probably there were 200,000 illegal abortions taking place per year in the 1930s. And some of these doctors believed that the time had come to revisit the nation's laws. Most of them did not argue that 
all abortion laws should be repealed or that abortion should be legalized through the first trimester or the second trimester, but rather they believed that in selective legalization of abortion, that perhaps abortion at the very least should be made legal when uh, a woman's health was threatened or uh, in cases of, of suspected rape or incest or when there was suspected fetal deformity. Those were the sort of arguments that they were making. Now, in contrast to that, Catholics proposed a very non-utilitarian system of morality, an ethic based on natural law, going all the way back to the medieval scholastic period with theologians such as Thomas Aquinas. Catholics believed that this line of thinking was dangerous because the utilitarians were essentially conceding that yes, the fetus might be human life, probably was human life, but that in order to achieve better results, to save other lives, to improve societal well-being, that life could be extinguished. And drawing on natural law theory, Catholic theologians and Catholic physicians of the 1930s began the campaign against legalized abortion. But it wasn't just abortion that concerned them. They were also very much concerned with the rapid societal acceptance of birth control. And, and by birth control, I should clarify that this is several decades before the pill was invented. So we're really talking about means of contraception uh, that were, were non-chemical, non-hormonal uh, barrier means of contraception. But that disturbed them because they believed that was both an affront to natural law and an assault on human life. Even though birth control did not involve killing per se, it introduced what they called a deadly cheapening of human life by treating human life as something to be prevented rather than valued, by treating sex as recreational and as something that could be separated from procreation. Those who promoted contraception, the Jesuit magazine America declared in 1924, would, quote, destroy the law of God and the law of nature by interfering with human life at its inception. For they would teach the custodians of human life how to frustrate life before birth. Now, what's striking is that the Catholics who launched this campaign against both abortion and contraception, standing for what they believed was the historic Christian tradition going all the way back to some of the earliest uh, years of the church uh, with the the Didache, uh, the second century document, and, and other very early church teachings provi providing this uniform voice against abortion and also against contraception. In addition to that, they believed that they were linking their campaign to a larger stand for human dignity that they associated with the New Deal. The National Catholic Welfare Conference had been campaigning for a living wage since 1919. They had been campaigning for workers' rights, for the rights of unions, and for various programs that would become enshrined in the New Deal for several years before the New Deal was introduced. All of this was focused on human dignity and the fundamental bedrock support of the nuclear family, 
that was usually headed, they believed, by a male breadwinner whose rights as a worker should be protected and whose children should be given adequate care by both the government and the church. And Catholics could draw on a number of papal encyclicals, uh, including most recently in the 1930s, Quadragesimo Anno, uh, that essentially outlined this philosophy. And the Pope at the time, Pope Pius XI, linked this social teaching to a larger ethic of respect for human life that included a stand against both contraception and abortion. And it appeared to Catholics that the Democratic Party was very much on their side. The Democratic Party was a party that in the 1930s embraced the ethic of care for the less fortunate. And it's not surprising that about 80% of Catholic voters in the 1930s supported Franklin Roosevelt and his New Deal. Franklin Roosevelt also brought a lot of Catholics into his administration. You can see here in this um, uh, slide the statistics on the number of federal judges that he appointed who were Catholic. By comparison, the previous three Republican presidents combined had nominated eight Catholics as judges to the federal bench. So there was a, a lot of, there were a lot of Catholics who were entering the administration or entering places of, of judicial power or legal power as a result of the New Deal. One of these people who was actually drafted to, uh, to join one of Roosevelt's New Deal agencies, the National Recovery Administration, was a priest, Father John Ryan, who had long been an advocate for the living wage, uh, arguing for that as early as 1906. But Father Ryan was also associated with this campaign against contraception. Well, the, this campaign against both abortion and contraception that was linked to the New Deal uh, was carried out uh, not only by the church hierarchy, but also by the National Federation of Catholic Physicians Guilds and a number of individual Catholic physicians joined this campaign in the 1930s. But it became broader in the 1940s. Uh, in the 1940s, in addition to linking their campaign for unborn human life to the principles of the New Deal and to the principles of natural law, Catholics also began grafting it onto a new international human rights tradition. Uh, in the late 1940s, after World War II, there was an unprecedented concern among liberals on an, uh, who were in both Europe and the United States, an unprecedented concern about protecting human rights on a global scale. And the foremost sign of that was the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights passed in 1948. Catholics contributed to this, or tried to contribute to it, by uh, suggesting their own uh, declaration of rights that they urged the UN to adopt. Uh, the one that the, that the bishops uh, of the United States suggested in 1948 began with the right to life. And from that followed, they said, the right to an education, the right to a living wage, uh, the right to, to uh, protection of workers' unions, all of those things followed, they believe, from this fundamental societal principle of the right to life. Now, the UN did not adopt that form of the Declaration of Human Rights, but in 1959, it did adopt the Declaration of the Rights of the Child, which declared that the child, quote, needs special safeguards and care including appropriate legal protection before as well as after 
birth. The World Medical Association in 1948 passed a resolution enjoining its doctors to, quote, maintain the utmost respect for human life from the time of conception. And between 1939 and 1958, the state Supreme Courts of California, <coughs> Kentucky, Minnesota, Ohio, and Oregon, along with the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia, issued decisions recognizing the personhood of the fetus in tort cases involving prenatal injury. So essentially what they were saying is if, if there's uh, a prenatal death, prenatal injury, say in an automobile accident, uh, the parents have the right to sue for damages not only on their own behalf but on, the, on behalf of this unborn child because the unborn child is a person. So in the 1940s and 1950s, there was a widespread consensus among many liberals, not just Catholics, but many liberals, that this international system of human rights that they subscribed to included protection for the right of the unborn child. That changed in the 1960s. And some of this change can be traced to an action that occurred in 1959. In 1959, the American Law Institute issued a model penal code. This is a, a national organization for lawyers who are telling state legislatures how they should uh, reform their, their law codes to match contemporary standards. And in this model penal code that they issued in 1959, they included a proposal to liberalize abortion laws and to allow abortion in cases of rape, incest, and suspected fetal deformity as well as cases in which, uh, uh, in which a pregnancy endangered a woman's health. What the, the lawyers were essentially doing was taking that utilitarian argument of those doctors in the 1930s and afterwards and making it part of their campaign for a modernized legal code. And throughout the 1960s, this Ollie-style model law provided the basis for the abortion liberalization movement. The abortion liberalization movement did not make the more recent arguments that it's a woman's body and a woman's choice or something of that nature. Instead, they made the utilitarian argument that the abortion laws were clearly not working <coughs> and the abortion laws needed to be updated to recognize that people had uh, a right to terminate a pregnancy in extreme cases in those cases where society would be better off or a woman's health would be better off if a pregnancy was terminated. And one of the, the cases that gave uh, widespread uh, credence to this view, for at least for some people, was something that happened in 1962 when a children's television star, a, a well-known figure at the time, Sherry Chesson Finkbein, found herself pregnant while taking a thalidomide-based tranquilizer that was known to cause birth defects. And so she decided that she needed an abortion. She lived in Arizona, and Arizona, like all states at the time, did not allow abortion for cases of suspected fetal deformity. But of course, that was one of the grounds on which uh, the Ollie-style model penal code had called for the legalization of abortion. She, she and her husband ended up going to Sweden to have this abortion. And she became a spokesperson for the abortion liberalization movement. And most of the nation's major papers, that is, 
New York Times and Los Angeles Times and others, gave sympathetic coverage to Finkbein's campaign. But for Catholics, this was highly problematic. Abortion in cases of fetal deformity, they pointed out, was in the words of one Catholic in 1962, quote, opening, opening the door to something worse than the kind of genocide practiced by Hitler. In other words, if you decided that babies shouldn't have a right to live if they were suspected of coming into the world with missing limbs or other deformities, then essentially you were saying that society had a right to decide that certain people's lives were worth keeping and others were not. And so the comparison to the Holocaust became widespread among Catholic pro-lifers in the early 1960s. Now what's also striking is that some of the people who made those comparisons were also speaking out against nuclear arms buildup and the war in Vietnam. For example, the Georgetown University philosophy professor Germaine Grise wrote in opposition to this mentality that he saw developing among people who were accepting the argument of the Finkbeins was, quote, it seems fair to assume that neither the pharmaceutical firms nor the medical profession will become more responsible if the public at large adopts the attitude that the results of such mistakes can be scrapped like so many defective parts that fail to pass inspection at the end of a production line. In other words, he said the path to a compassionate society is not to say that women have the right to terminate pregnancies to end the lives of those that they suspect are less than perfect. Rather, society would be much better off, would be much more compassionate if we encouraged medical research that would treat those deformities. And while he was writing against that, he was also writing against nuclear arms buildup in the war in Vietnam. Now for a while, Catholics gained ground with this argument. There were no abortion liberalization laws passed before 1965. <coughs> but in 1965, there were two events that happened that year that provided a severe setback for the Catholics' pro-life campaign. One of those was Vatican II. Vatican II what, uh, was a, an ecumenical council, the first one in nearly a century and the, and the largest one uh, up to that point in time, that essentially revisited a lot of church customs and, and church priorities. Vatican II took a strong stand against abortion but that was lost uh, for a lot of people who simply read Vatican II as a sign that the church's standards, the Catholic Church's standards, were not unchanging. If Latin Mass could give way to Mass in the vernacular, if the priest could move from facing away from the congregation to facing the congregation, if the laity could be given greater, a greater voice in the church, then couldn't the church change on the issue of birth control. And most Catholics of the time, a majority, expected, they said, the church to change its stance on birth control within five years. And by the end of the 1960s, a majority of Catholics were using methods of birth control that were <laughs> forbidden by the church. 
1965, for instance, 53% of Catholic wives who were in their late teens or 20s were using a form of contraception forbidden by the church. And by the, by the end of the 1960s, it would be a majority of, of all Catholics, of Catholic women of childbearing age. But furthermore, if the church could change on birth control, which actually it did not, uh, but, if it, but if it could, if people assumed that it would, then how solid was church teaching on abortion or any other moral subject for that matter? A National Opinion Research Survey conducted in the spring of 1966 revealed that 64% of Catholic men and 58% of Catholic women supported legalizing abortion in cases where it was necessary to protect a woman's health. And the grounds on which they usually appealed was the right of conscience, which Vatican II had described and which was much abused uh, among Catholics at this time, where people would claim the right of private interpretation of church teaching, which before Vatican II was mostly unthinkable. But the other thing that happened in 1965 was a Supreme Court case called Griswold versus Connecticut. Griswold versus Connecticut ruled that states could not restrict married couples' access to birth control since the right to privacy protected marital intimacy from state interference. Now, read strictly on those grounds, one could argue that Griswold versus Connecticut actually protected a Christian value, that is, the right of men and women who are married to have their marriage protected from state interference on the grounds of right to privacy in marriage. But that's not the way that it was generally read at the time. And in fact, by 1972, the Supreme Court would shift uh, in the Eisenstadt versus Baer decision from locating the right to privacy in marriage to locating the right to privacy in the individual. That is, the individual people had a right to sexual privacy, according to the Supreme Court in 1972. But already by 1965, the door was beginning to be open to that, even though the grounds for deciding Griswold had been rather narrow. And what Griswold did was to sweep away the last uh, vestiges of, of laws against birth control in a few New England states, such as uh, Massachusetts and Connecticut, where Catholics uh, had succeeded in, in keeping the sale of birth control uh, illegal. And it discredited the church in the view of most people, in the, uh, most members of the public, because the church had lost this fight. And if the church didn't have the political power that people thought that it did, if they couldn't even stop their own members from using birth control, and if they could not maintain laws against birth control, and if even their own members were drifting in their thinking on abortion, then why should politicians listen to the Catholic Church? They didn't have the votes that politicians had once believed that they had. And so that gave new political impetus to an abortion law liberalization campaign. Between 1967 and 1970, 13 states liberalized their abortion law, passing the Ali-style bills that allowed for abortion for certain stated reasons. And four states, uh, New York, Hawaii, Alaska, and Washington state, legalized all abortion up uh, through the second trimester, uh, which meant that what people at the time called abortion on demand could, after 1970, be found by anyone who had money for a bus ticket to New York. Now, what may be most shocking to some of you in all of this is that 
most of those abortion liberalization laws or legalization laws were signed into law by Republican governors. They were passed in many cases by Republican legislatures. And so the first state to do so was Colorado in the spring of 1967. Colorado had a Republican governor and Republican control of both houses of, of the legislature. The second state, or, or one of the first three states to do so was California, where conservative Republicans joined by liberal Democrats in both houses of the state legislature pushed through uh, an abortion liberalization bill that was then signed by Governor Ronald Reagan. In Maryland, Spiro Agnew, who would soon become vice president under Richard Nixon, was strongly pushing for abortion law reform. And in New York, the liberal Republican, Nelson Rockefeller, had been campaigning for abortion legalization for years and signed into law the nation's most liberal abortion law before Roe v. Wade, a, a law that, that repealed almost all restrictions on abortion before the, the 24, up through the 24th week of pregnancy, and also had no residency requirement. So uh, there, were, there were a number of, uh, of, of tourist agencies that began offering packages uh, for people to fly from, say, Detroit to New York or from other destinations to New York. They'd get a special package deal where they could fly in on one day, fly out the next day, get a, a host, hotel stay included in that right next to the hospital, and then come home a day later uh, with their hospital abortions. And that led to 200,000 legal abortions per year in the state of New York alone. Mm -hmm. Now, by the late 1960s, there were a number of new arguments for abortion that were gaining ground. One of those was population control. The world was going to run out of food, uh, some people predicted, especially Paul Ehrlich. Now, actually, the world has never come close to running out of food. but. In the late 1960s, many people believed that that would happen, that the world was becoming overcrowded, that uh, the high birth rates that had, had been common in the, in the late 1950s and early 1960s were now frowned upon. Uh, and some people argued, many people argued, that legalizing abortion would help to control the population. Uh, but ultimately, the, um, the argument that would would um, take hold, and it, I thought I had a slide here. Maybe I'll try to get to it. Um, it's probably out of order, but um, the, the argument that would become most common uh, was the argument that abortion should be a woman's choice. The feminist movement was emerging in the 1960s, and one of the, the founding mothers of the movement, uh, one of the co-founders of the National Organization for Women, Betty Friedan, led that organization to pass a resolution urging for the repeal of all abortion laws in 1967. So how could you stop this, this wave of this sea change in public opinion that was occurring in the late 1960s? Father James McHugh, uh, who was head of the Family Life Bureau of the US Catholic Conference, which was the national organization for Catholic bishops uh, in, the, in the United States, decided that Catholics were going to have to reframe their message. They had made a mistake to tie opposition to abortion too closely to natural law, which didn't really have much appeal among Protestants, and to, uh, especially to the campaign against contraception. And it was important, he argued, for the Catholic Church to separate these issues. And so in 1968, when he led 
a group of Catholics to found the, what would become the National Right to Life Committee. He made it very clear that he wanted to see this committee make human rights arguments against abortion. After all, these arguments had been found in the 1930s and 1940s, but maybe they had, they had been forgotten in the public mind. Maybe people, maybe the, the pro-lifers were losing because the campaign seemed too Catholic. It was time to ally with Protestant liberals. And so McHugh, who was a political liberal himself, began promoting the idea that maybe the pro-life movement could be linked to opposition to war when he uh, distributed a, a sample homily, the, the most common Catholic name for, for what uh, substitutes for a sermon. Uh, when, he, um, when he distributed that sample homily to, uh, to priests across the United States in January 1969, encouraging them to observe a Human Life Sunday, that, that homily mentioned, along with abortion, concerns about war and concerns about poverty. And these were central for, uh, for McHugh. The argument that he said pro-lifers should highlight above all others was his argument that the Catholic theologian Richard McCormick made in 1965, which is that one cannot put a price on human life. A failure in proper reverence for a single life, be it adult, or intrauterine is an attack on us all in principle, McCormick wrote. We all have a profound communal stake in how our society solves its social, economic, and medical problems, whether destructively or constructively. Now, I, I read that quotation because I want you to get a sense of the Catholic language that was contributing to pro-life advocacy in the late 1960s. This was the article that, that Father McHugh circulated to people, uh, to pro-life advocates across the United States. This is what he said every pro-lifer should read. And it was framing the cause against abortion in terms of a communal stake in how society solved its social, economic, and medical problems. In other words, we, we all have a concern for each other that we are not individualists in society. And that was very much in keeping with the way that Catholics thought of this. Now, <coughs> some of you, um, maybe thinking, since I think all of you in this room most likely are, um, are evangelicals, mostly of the Reformed variety, you're probably thinking, we've been talking for 25 minutes or so about pro-life uh, issues and evangelicals and in general Protestants have really never come up. Where were they? Uh, well, in 1968, Christianity Today reported on a, a conference that uh, 25 evangelical theologians and, and doctors, uh, including uh, uh, former RTS professor Bruce Waltke, um, attended. And the overwhelming consensus among those 25 evangelical leaders in 1968 was that abortion could be acceptable in certain cases, that abortion on demand was wrong. But that was the mainstream view of all of the nation's leading evangelical magazines at the time, Christianity Today, uh, Eternity Magazine, Christian Life, and others, they, they all in the late 1960s took the view that abortion was not absolutely wrong, that abortion was problematic. It raised certain questions. Uh, there was, at the very least, potential human life, maybe the question of absolute human life there, but that one would be going too far 
one would be going beyond the scriptures to say that abortion was necessarily wrong. And so as a result, there was no discernible evangelical participation in the Catholic pro-life campaign in the late 1960s. The first evidence that I've seen of evangelicals joining the pro-life movement to any discernible degree was in 1970, after New York legalized abortion on demand. And even then, the numbers of, of evangelicals who spoke out against abortion were, were few. That's not because they didn't see, that it's not because they, they believed that abortion should be legalized, it was simply that they didn't believe that they had sufficient grounds on which to oppose it, and they did not consider it as important an issue as a number of other issues, especially opposing the sexual revolution at the time. So for the most part, this, this rise of abortion, of legalized abortion on demand in the United States was occurring without non-Catholics becoming particularly concerned. So how could you change that? McHugh had argued in, uh, McHugh had argued in 1968 that Protestants had to, to be attracted to the movement. And yet, after two years of this campaign to try to enlist Protestants, only a token number were involved. And so then in 1970, another uh, Catholic cleric, Father Paul Marx, who was a sociology professor uh, at St. John's University in Minnesota, had another idea for getting people involved in the pro-life movement, and that was to use fetal photography. Now, the very first fetal photographs that most people had seen had been published in 1965. This was a brand new science at the time. And well, there were a lot of Americans who had never really seen a picture of what the unborn child looked like. So Father Marx drafted uh, Another, uh, another Catholic, the doctor um, Jack Wilkie and his, his wife, who was a nurse, uh, Barbara Wilkie, to publicize brand new fetal photographs. And Jack Wilkie took this show on the road, uh, so to speak, uh, traveling across the country, giving lectures in which he would show slides like this one, showing people what was actually happening in an abortion. There were some other pictures that he showed that I decided not to show uh, that were a bit more horrific of the remains of abortions and, and other things of that nature. And this actually worked. Uh, in Michigan, there was a referendum in 1972 in which public opinion polls had shown a strong majority of people of Michigan voters were projected to vote in favor of legalizing abortion on demand through the middle of the second trimester. And after a bevy of billboard advertising and television advertising that featured fetal photographs, the result was a victory for the pro-life movement. Abortion was not legalized in Michigan. In fact, there was only one state that legalized abortion between December 1970 and January 1973, and that was Florida, and it did so only under court order. Between January of uh, between December of 1970 and January of 1973, the pro-lifers won a string of victories, defeating 25 bills at the state legislative level in 1971 alone, for example. So it seemed that momentum was moving to the pro-life side. 
And this movement that was winning was also a liberal human rights movement. You may not be able to see it from here, but notice that Father Paul Marx is wearing a peace sign uh, on his lapel um, while he's lecturing against abortion and against the sexual revolution. And that was fairly common. Uh, now, at this point, in 1971, uh, there were a few Protestant, a few evangelicals, especially Carl Henry, who was an early leader in this, who began writing against abortion. Carl Henry was willing to accept abortion very reluctantly in cases of, of rape or dangers to a woman's life, but beyond that, he believed that abortion was murder and had to be opposed. So there were some signs of a, a broader coalition emerging against abortion, or at the very least, becoming uncomfortable with what was called abortion on demand. In 1971, the Southern Baptist Convention, while not nearly as pro, strongly pro-life as Carl Henry was, nevertheless passed a resolution that encouraged people to pass the more moderate, encouraged state legislators to pass the more moderate uh, abortion liberalization bills and not the abortion on demand bills. Uh, that there, there was a, an emerging discomfort among both evangelicals and mainline Protestants with what was happening in New York and other states that had legalized abortion on demand. Now what was also <laughs> happening was the pro-life movement was giving greater leadership positions to women, or rather women were taking those on their own, and the formerly predominantly male leadership of the pro-life movement was welcoming that as a voice against feminism. The, the pro-life movement had always had majority support among women. Uh, in the 1960s and 1970s, women were more likely than men to oppose abortion. But nevertheless, up until the early 1970s, the, the leaders of the pro-life movement by and large had been men because the pro-life movement believed that they needed to make a professional stand against abortion, that, that they needed to, to speak out against abortion as, as doctors and as lawyers uh, to, to counteract this abortion liberalization campaign. But as abortion rights advocacy moved into the realm of arguing for a woman's right to choose, uh, the pro-life movement decided that giving women more of an opportunity to speak about what abortion was doing to them as women, how it was an affront to, to women's rights as well as fetal rights, was a good idea. They also continued to make the link between opposition to the war in Vietnam and the pro-life movement. Many of the women who joined the movement also, especially in Minnesota and other parts of the Midwest, also made the argument that they needed to participate uh, in campaigns for expanded uh, maternal and prenatal health insurance, uh, in campaign, in anti-poverty campaigns, and against the Vietnam War. And it was because of that that some of the leading liberal Catholic politicians of the time joined the pro-life movement. In 1971, Senator Ted Kennedy argued for the connection between pro-life activism and other social justice causes. Wanted or unwanted, he said, I believe that human life, even at its earliest stages, has certain rights which must be recognized. The right to be born, 
the right to love, the right to grow old. When history looks back to this era, it should recognize this generation as one which cared about human beings enough to halt the practice of war, to provide a decent living for every family, and to fulfill its responsibility to its children from the very moment of conception. Jesse Jackson was a civil rights activist of the 1970s who was also a pro-life activist, uh, writing occasional articles for the National Right to Life News, in which he linked pro-life advocacy with concerns for civil rights and human dignity and the lives of the less fortunate. Now, why did this rhetoric eventually disappear? And the argument that I make in Defenders of the Unborn is that while the pro-life movement was grounded in liberalism, human rights liberalism, it also had to contend with another movement of the time that was grounded in liberalism. Had it just confronted the utilitarian arguments that we've talked about, I think it would have easily won the debate. But by the early 1970s, it also found itself up against the pro-choice feminist movement, which was making the argument, also based on human rights, that a woman had the absolute right to control her own body. And that women would never achieve equality with men unless <coughs> their right to choose not to be pregnant was protected in public law. In Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court heard arguments from the pro-choice feminist side, and they also heard arguments from pro-life lawyers. Pro-lifers made the legal case that I've essentially outlined in brief today, which is that the Constitution protects the right to life of all people uh, in the United States. Courts have recognized the unborn as a human person over and over again in the 1940s, 1950s, and even afterwards in the 1960s and even early 1970s. Science provides a compelling case that there's no change in identity between the unborn child and the born child. And therefore, on grounds of human rights and the Constitution, the unborn has to be protected in public law. But the counter-argument that, that Sarah Weddington and other pro-choice feminist lawyers presented was that the right to privacy, remember Griswold, protected a woman's decisions over her own body. Regardless of whether the fetus was a person, and the Supreme Court declared that it could not make a judgment on that case, the, a woman had the right to do with her body what she wanted to do, and the government had to stay out of that. And that's the argument that won in Roe v. Wade. And once Roe v. Wade happened, a number of prominent Democrats who had been supportive of the pro-life movement took political cover in Roe v. Wade to side with the feminists in their party. The party was nearly evenly divided on abortion in the 1970s. And so rather than try to alienate one group or the other, many Democrats found it easier to simply settle with the status quo. And that's what Ted Kennedy did in 1975, saying that he was personally opposed to abortion, but the Supreme Court had decided in Roe that abortion was a constitutional right, and he did not support efforts to overturn that decision. In response, many pro-lifers began moving toward the Republican Party. 
The Republican Party had not been supportive of their cause before Roe to any discernible degree, but there were a variety of reasons why Republicans were skeptical about Roe. It was an example, yet another example of a liberal overreach by a Supreme Court on, that was legislating on liberal grounds, a right found in the, quote, penumbra, that is, shadow of the Constitution. There was no right to privacy yet clearly outlined in the, in the Constitution, yet it was on those grounds that the Supreme Court decided. And wasn't this a, a, something that could be, be better decided at the local level? And that's something that many Republicans, that's an argument many Republicans made. But the pro-life movement itself in the 1970s pushed for something stronger. Mildred Jefferson, uh, president of the National Right to Life Committee in the mid-1970s, and numerous others, in fact, nearly all pro-life ad advocates in the 1970s, pushed for a human life amendment that would not only overturn Roe, but would go much further in protecting human life explicitly from the moment of conception. They believed that the Constitution already, when rightly interpreted, did provide for that protection, but since the Supreme Court had refused to recognize it, they wanted to pass a human life amendment that would explicitly protect human life from the moment of conception. Ronald Reagan became the first major Republican politician running for the presidency to endorse the human life amendment. He had had second thoughts about abortion for some time. And in the mid-1970s, for a variety of reasons, including his strong opposition to a liberal Supreme Court, he decided to embrace the Human Life Amendment. And his challenge to Gerald Ford prompted the Republican Party to move to the right on abortion and to pass its first platform plank in 1976, explicitly opposing Roe v. Wade and endorsing a constitutional amendment campaign to overturn Roe. Now the evangelicals enter the story in large numbers. In the late 1970s, there was an emerging Christian right. The people who formed the Christian right were, as I briefly mentioned this morning, people who were bothered by the, the moral drift of the nation. Many of them were inspired by Francis Schaeffer. Schaeffer had begun writing against abortion uh, in the early to mid-1970s, and, and in 1976, he made opposition to abortion uh, a relatively central part of his book and uh, documentary series, um, How Should We Then Live? He later ex would expand on this in 1979 uh, with whatever happened to the human race. But Schaefer had been influenced, perhaps, by his friendship with a, a Catholic convert, Malcolm Muggeridge, uh, in the early 1970s, to, to view abortion as a great moral evil. And when he spoke out against abortion, he largely repeated the arguments that you could find in a pro-life book by Catholics of the 1960s. Except, unlike those Catholics, Schaefer did not directly try to link the cause of, of abortion opposition to the larger Catholic communal values or opposition to the Vietnam War or anti-poverty campaigns. And some of the conservative evangelicals who read Schaefer were even further to the political right. And so for people like Falwell, campaigning against abortion was linked very closely to campaigning for the restoration of traditional sexual morality, to campaigning against homosexuality, uh, to, to campaigning for the traditional family. And so they, linked, they reframed the pro-life cause uh, in culturally conservative terms, in ways that maybe the pro-life activists of the late 1960s would not have quite recognized. 
Well, there was a split in the late 1970s between liberal Protestants and conservative Protestants on this issue. In the early 1970s, many of the Protestants involved in the pro-life movement had been mainline Protestants, liberal Protestants, Episcopalians, and Methodists, who, despite the fact that their, uh, that their denominations officially endorsed abortion rights, believed that their advocacy of liberal causes compelled them to stand for justice for the unborn. But in the late 1970s, that began disappearing. It became harder and harder to find liberal Protestants who supported the pro-life cause. In fact, most liberal Protestant denominations lined up very strongly in favor of the pro-choice cause. Meanwhile, evangelicals were becoming more strongly pro-life, and in the 1980s, at least on the political level, they would come to dominate the pro-life movement, even though they had not founded it. With President Ronald Reagan, the liberal pro-lifers, represented by <coughs> Catholics like Cardinal Joseph Bernardine, who wanted to link the pro-life cause to an opposition to capital punishment and opposition to nuclear arms buildup, found themselves politically marginalized. There were many people who took that stance in the 1980s, but they couldn't get anywhere with it. The Democratic Party refused to listen to them, and the Reagan administration had no intention of listening to them on the issue of nuclear arms buildup. So they found themselves in the political wilderness. And meanwhile, the people who, who had a voice at the political table were people like Jerry Falwell. Uh, so as the Democratic Party moved more toward a more strongly pro-choice direction in the 1980s, it became more and more difficult for pro-lifers in good conscience to align themselves with the Democrats. Uh, in the meantime, something interesting happened in the Republican Party. The only time in which an anti-abortion constitutional amendment reached this, the Senate floor was in 1983, and it was defeated. And after that, that is, for the last uh, 34 years, there has been no serious attempt to move an anti-abortion constitutional amendment to the, to the Senate floor. Instead, what pro-lifers have done is to embrace a judicial strategy, which is a little bit different than their initial goal. They were not planning to initially to overturn Roe v. Wade with a court decision. They wanted something much more sweeping, a constitutional amendment. But they realized in the 1980s that because of the Republican Party's interest in moving the Supreme Court to the right, that they could capitalize on this and repeal Roe v. Wade or rescind Roe v. Wade much more quickly by getting the right justices to the bench. Um, now that strategy ended up not quite working. If Judge Robert Bork had been confirmed in 1987, it's almost certain that Roe would have been overturned by 1992, if not earlier. Instead, uh, Bork was denied confirmation, ironically, by Catholics who are now thoroughly pro-choice, but two Catholics, Senator Joe Biden and Senator Ted Kennedy, led the campaign against Bork. And the Supreme Court, while moving to the right on the abortion issue, did not move quite enough for victory. The person who was nominated in, instead of Bork when Bork's confirmation fight failed was Anthony Kennedy. And Anthony Kennedy sided with the pro-row majority, the five to four pro-row majority in the 1992 case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And that's where the Supreme Court has been ever since. Right now, we're at three votes soon, assuming that Judge Gorsuch is nominated, presumably it would go up to four that are anti-Roe votes and a five-vote majority in, keep, in favor of keeping Roe v. Wade. Now, by, why, do I, why do I talk about this? Well, 
the judicial strategy forced pro-lifers more or less to align themselves with Republicans. Because if your definition of being pro-life is to vote for people who will nominate, pro, nominate or confirm justices that would oppose Roe v. Wade, the only way to do that is to cooperate with Republicans. The goal has not happened yet. But strikingly, I think the abortion rate has dropped in the absence of overturning Roe. It's dropped with both Republican and Democratic presidents. One could argue that it's dropped in spite of policies rather than because of them. That's open to question. Uh, but one reason that I think the pro-life movement is winning, uh, even though it hasn't overturned Roe, is because the pro-life cause is a human rights cause. It's rooted in the sort of language that millennials find compelling and that most Americans find compelling. Even as gay rights have continued to gain ascendancy, even as other rights-based movements have won, the pro-life movement, at the very least, has kept this issue alive and has made Americans increasingly uncomfortable with abortion because it has made a compelling case that abortion is about protecting human rights, protecting human life. But as I also argue at the end of my book, there are going to be limits to these victories because the pro-life movement also has to confront the fact that the sexual revolution has largely won in the United States. Uh, the out-of-wedlock birth rate has continued to increase. Uh, and even with this high out-of-wedlock birth rate, 85% of abortions today are performed on unmarried women, most of whom have already had another child out of wedlock before that. Um, and so the question is, how do we confront abortion it today? The answers are not easy. They seemed easier, perhaps, in the late 60s and early 70s. This was a campaign for human life. It was a campaign for human rights. But it's become apparent, I think, that neither the liberals nor the conservatives in the pro-life movement have had the answer to this issue. Liberals in the pro-life movement would have said we need to reduce poverty. And certainly poverty is closely correlated with abortion rates. But conservatives could also make a case that they need to protect the family because abortion rates are even more closely correlated with out-of-wedlock pregnancy. And that's where we are today. Uh, we are at a place where I think the pro-life movement has gained a lot of public relations victories, has won a lot of converts to the cause, and where the abortion rate continues to drop but where I think we're also confronting the fact that maybe ridding the nation of abortion is going to be more difficult than it has appeared before, certainly more difficult than people in the late 1960s and late 1970s believed. Thank you. We have some time for some questions. So, Uh, well, I think that presidents have been somewhat disingenuous in the past about not having a litmus test. Um, I think the evidence is that George W. Bush had a litmus test. He was forced to have a lit litmus test by his base. There's absolutely no way that the Republican base would tolerate a Republican president nominating a pro-Roe justice again. That happened in the, in the 80s and it happened in the early 90s. But when... Um, 
when President George W. Bush nominated Harriet Myers, there was outcry from, cons from some cultural conservatives who were afraid that she wouldn't be sufficiently uh, conservative, that she wouldn't be sufficiently pro-life. There was question about their, her record. They wanted a strongly <coughs> conservative justice. And I think the, one of the reasons why President Trump won a very close election was because he solidified the evangelical vote. Uh, more than 80% of evangelicals voted for them, and, and the number one reason, according to exit polls, seems to be that they cared about the Supreme Court. So I think he knew what, he, what was required politically, and he agreed to a litmus test. Now, he was not the first to do that. The Democrats have actually been fairly open that they would not appoint a justice who was committed to overturning Roe. So both sides have adopted a litmus test, uh, and I, I think we're simply at a point where people are more honest about acknowledging that than maybe they were in the past. It certainly it, it certainly made a difference. Um, the, there are now more crisis pregnancy centers than abortion clinics in the United States, and the crisis pregnancy centers uh, have relied uh, in large degree on the technology of color ultrasounds of showing a woman what exactly her unborn baby looks like. Uh, so I, I think that that certainly has made a difference. Um, as best as I can tell, though, and and it's really impossible to tease this out. Uh, the crisis pregnancy centers will have their greatest effect on a, a woman who already feels conflicted about abortion. Um, and there are other women who are quite open about the fact that, yes, this probably is a human life. They feel terrible about it, but they feel like they don't have an option. They feel like adoption is not an option for them. And, uh, and so there, there's going to be limits to what a color ultrasound can do. The fight against abortion is not as simple as showing people what an unborn baby looks like. But I think for a it is successful in making Americans continue to feel uncomfortable with abortion. And in the right circumstances for a woman who's already feeling somewhat conflicted about this, when confronted with a, a clear picture of her unborn baby and the surrounding arms of loving people who will say you have other options, she may well make the decision not to have the abortion. And so that's where it's valuable. Along the same lines, projecting into the future, do you see the pro-life movement once again becoming more concerned with grander societal concerns? Because it seems, um, I think the last slide said that 85% of abortions are on unmarried women. Mm -hmm. So it's women who might be having an abortion even if it become, became illegal. So would the pro-life movement possibly once again become concerned with issues of poverty or education or anything like that? I think there are signs that it could be. And the, and the main sign of that, I think, is is um, the political program that millennials are, are interested in. So if you look at the National Right to Life Committee, the National Right to Life Committee shows no signs of changing on this. They, they're very focused on the political fight, and the political fight, in their view, can only be won by aligning themselves with Republicans. So in the last 10 years, they've become more Republican rather than less. But if you look on the ground, if you just talk to people who are involved in pro-life organizations on college campuses, if you go to the March for Life and talk to the students who are are very active in that movement, I think you might get a different political picture. And so, yes, I think that um, a number of, of pro-life millennials would like to see the, the political rhetoric change. They, they're deeply suspicious of organized politics, of political institutions of, of the Republican Party. They may not really want to align with the Democratic Party either, but they're much more interested in, say, hands-on work at a crisis pregnancy center and fighting abortion uh, through personal persuasion rather than um, through the sort of political program that the Christian right envisioned. 
is about the what how race plays into this discussion. And like you talked about Jackson mm -hmm. and like the civil rights movement, how that was kind of um, anti-abortion at the time. So I'm wondering like, but then also like with the feminist movement, I, I don't, I'm not super well read on this, but just statements against African-Americans and using abortion that way. Like historically, has there been any trends with like right. racial? Yes, so in the 1970s, African-Americans were the demographic group that was most strongly opposed to abortion. In fact, they were even more strongly opposed to abortion than white Catholics were on average. Uh, nevertheless, they were slow to join the pro-life movement or, or reluctant to join it because it was dominated by white Catholics who seemed to have very little in common with them. So most of them did their, their pro-life thinking on the sidelines. But that changed, I think, in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, so today, African-Americans are not overwhelmingly pro-life. And African Americans are much more likely than other women to have, um, to have abortions. 28% of all uh, abortions in the United States are performed on African American women, whereas African Americans make up between 12 and 15% of the population. So there's, and part of this is because abortion is so closely tied to poverty and so closely tied out of wedlock birth. Um, now the, the line that I think a lot of white um, pro-lifers have used, and that was believed by many African-American pro-lifers in the 1970s, is that um, the abortion clinics are a genocidal plot, that this is, that this is a, an effort to, to keep the black birth rate low. And, that, and African -American, many African-Americans said that in the 1970s. But I think very few African-Americans are saying that today. There are some. Um, there, I, I think um, Alveda King would be an example of one. But, uh, but for the most part, I think that rhetoric is just not very persuasive, I think, and it's not very honest. And so I think what we need to acknowledge is the fact that um, abortion clinics open where there's business for abortion. And there is a lot of popular demand uh, among women who feel like they don't have other options. Um, the typical, uh, while, there, while abortion rate, uh, while individual abortion cases obviously vary, if you just looked at the typical abortion case, it would be a woman who's had one or two children, uh, who's not married, who's um, perhaps not in a committed relationship, who is below the poverty line or just barely above the poverty line, who's struggling, who may have just started um, uh, an educational program who, and feels that would be interrupted, and who, who's not quite sure how she's going to care for the children she has, who doesn't want another mouse to feed um, another burden and so reluctantly makes the decision to have an abortion. Um, and, and if we have that picture in our mind, I think it's gonna be a more accurate picture than now long outdated pictures of racial superiority, genocide, that sort of thing. Um, when I finished undergrad, there was an organization called Just Life. Mm -hmm. What happened to that? It failed in 1992. So what happened is, it, I think it started, it started in, um, Michigan in, 19, in the mid-1980s, there were some um, professors from Calvin College, I think, associated with it, and there, was also, there were also a number of, of Catholics associated with it, liberal Catholics. Uh, and so it, it started with great, to great fanfare in the late 1980s. I mean, it, it was, they had a number of people that they were supporting, people like um, Bob Casey, of course, the governor of Pennsylvania. But by 1992, they were running short on funds, and one of the reasons they were running short on funds was because it was obvious they had no political influence and they were finding it difficult to find candidates to support. How many candidates were there 
1992 who opposed abortion, opposed nuclear arms buildup, opposed capital punishment. There just weren't that many. The, the two parties had split on the abortion issue, and, it, and they, their initial hope of finding pro-life Democrats was, was rapidly disappearing. So in the absence of, of a viable uh, political lobbying campaign, the organization folded uh, at the end of the 92 election cycle. Yes. Uh, what's the sort of behind the shift in Evangelicals' views on abortion? I know you talked about Schaefer, but it mm-hmm. seems um, like a really big jump between the not thinking the Bible really had a position on it to almost universally being anti-abortion. Right. Uh, that, I mean, that's a great question, and I think several things happened. One was um, the effects of abortion on demand. So by 1990, by 1980, there were 1.5 million abortions per year in the United States and there was one abortion for every two live births. So it was a massive number of legal abortions, which in the early 1970s, few people on either side of the debate had foreseen. So they were, people were confronted with abortion in a new way. They were seeing abortion clinics move into their neighborhoods, move into even conservative places like Birmingham by the late 1970s. And so that was one factor, uh, just seeing what legalized abortion did. But the other, I think, was there was a, a feeling that American society had drifted. It, it had lost its basis for uh, belief in God at the public level. It had, the sexual revolution had been catastrophic. And in the mid to late 1970s, abortion became the issue that nicely tied into all those other concerns. So abortion was about sex, but it was also about the Supreme Court, this godless Supreme Court usurping the power of uh, that belonged to somebody else, uh, but, not, but not the court. It uh, was about a, um, uh, a variety of things, really, uh, that could be tied into this. And so you could tie in civil religious concerns, you could tie in uh, concerns about sexual morality, and all of it could be united around this, this really powerful narrative of social justice, that a human life was at stake, that there was an innocent victim it was a clear demonstrable innocent victim. And that, that had power. There was really no other issue that you could, you could say that about. I mean, there, you could be concerned about divorce, for instance, but you couldn't pinpoint a single Supreme Court case and say, okay, that's where divorce started in this country. Or, or, and the same was true with a number of others. But, and this was a greatly over, oversimplified story that people told that Roe v. Wade had produced legal abortion in the United States. It had not. Uh, but that was the story that people told. It was these seven justices acting against God who had acted against human life and destroyed the family, and that that's what was going to be restored. And it could be restored very easily, because if you believe the Supreme Court did it, well, then you can reverse that decision. And so I, I think because a lot of people were talking about secular humanism at the time, and you needed an issue that symbolized secular humanism, abortion emerged as that issue. Now, the way that I phrased it sounds a little cynical. There was no plot behind this. There was no person in a back room who said, I think I'll choose abortion and, and raise a bunch of money that way. Um, so and some people have, have said that that was the case. Uh, so if you look at some historians of American evangelicalism, modern American evangelical politics, they would tell the story that way. And I, I don't think that was the case. I think it was rather on a, on an organic movement. Schaefer and others were popularizing something that because of a unique constellation of factors uh, fed into what people wanted to hear. Now, then the question is, why didn't they believe those things in the late 1960s? And in the late 1960s, there was no Supreme Court case on the issue. The people who were 
campaign against abortion were Catholics. There was no evidence of what legalized abortion could do. Uh, there seemed to be greater threats uh, to society than abortion, uh, and so it simply didn't have the, the rhetorical power that it would a decade later. Yes? Was Carl Henry the only one who used the argument of murder? No, uh, there were a number of others. Um, Billy Graham's uh, father-in-law, who was a Southern Presbyterian, L. Nelson Bell, um, said things similar, although L. Nelson Bell had admitted that he had performed some abortions as a doctor um, in extreme cases. Uh, but he did, he did become very troubled by abortion in the early 1970s. Looks like we're out of time. Let's show our thanks. Sure.